Well, as you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 16, I read an interesting uh, article, research that was done of a study by a professor at Northwestern University. You know, this year is Olympics year. Uh, They will be having Olympics and, you know, the competition of Olympics, the uh, the winners either received a gold medal, a silver medal, or a bronze medal. And she did some research with Olympic medalists, and she discovered this. I found this very interesting. She discovered that bronze medalists, that's third place, were happier than silver medalists. Now, you would think that wouldn't be true. Is there any marital issues between you guys there? I see. Did you all fight on the way to church? Okay. All right. All right. Just because we do have a marriage conference coming up. All right. Whoa, whoa. I'm teasing. I couldn't help but notice that there. But she discovered that bronze medalists were happier than silver. And here's why. Okay. Just bear with me. She found that silver medalists, the second place winners, tended to focus on how close they came to winning the gold. Bronze medalists were just glad that they won something. You see the difference? It has to do with focus. It reveals something about human nature is that often your focus determines your reality. How we feel isn't always based upon objective circumstances. We kind of think, you know, if I could just get a better job, a better car, a better spouse. Did I say we have a marriage conference coming up? (laughs) Then all my problems would be solved. And you know what? You can get all that and guess what? You're still discontented. Internal attitudes often, often are more important than your external circumstances. Attitude is vital. Attitude is important. John Milton, who wrote Paradise Lost, and made this statement I thought was interesting. The mind, the mind is its own place and in itself the mind can make a heaven out of hell and a hell out of heaven. I thought that is often the case. People who can, you know people, and I do too, they can find something good. Many of you are out here. You're going through some tough circumstances. You're going through some tough trials. And yet, when I'm around you, you say it's all good. God's in control. And I don't think you're delusional. I think, again, you, you, you're dealing with tough st- stuff, tough is- issues. But you are one of those people that you have learned, and I say that learned, to focus where your focus is on seeing that God is always with me. He never will leave me. He will never forsake me. And I believe that even through this, God works all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. We know people like that. Those people convict us because they realize how whiny we are. 
Of course, maybe you're not whiny. I can be whiny. Anybody can be whiny? All right, we got a bunch of fibbers in here. Now, on the other scale, we know people that are blessed and have so much. And when you're around them, they just gripe and complain about everything. I mean, they cannot go five minutes without complaining about something. And yes, we have those folks here as well. Attitude, how we focus on our trials. And as you can see from the graphic, we want to hear the word of the Lord this morning concerning worshiping through our trials. I believe most of us, in some form or measure, are going through stuff. You've heard me say before, sometimes we, the Bible uses the valley as kind of a picture of, you know, the downtime, the wilderness time, the dark time. Though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Well, here's kind of a truism, and I've said this many times. Life is kind of like this. You're either in a valley, you're coming out of the valley, or you're getting ready to do what? Go into the valley. Do you ever feel like life is kind of that circle? Huh? Well, we want to hear the word of the Lord today from Acts chapter 16. I'm not going to, because it's a long narrative, I'm not going to necessarily read it all at the beginning. And we'll kind of walk through it and make some application here in the time that we have. Trials are hardships and difficulties over which we have no control. We like controlling stuff. Even if you're not a control, you like controlling the circumstances around you. That's human nature. But when we're going through the trials, the hardships of life, it's situations that we have no control over. There's forces out there that are making decisions that we... We have no control. We can't, we can't do anything about it except just wait and endure it. And the trials that we may go through take in all shapes and sizes. Job-related, home-related, children, siblings, in-laws, outlaws, everybody, is. there's something that is always going on. Hardship on the job. Many of you are dealing with health issues. We all are facing some measure of a trial, some more serious and life-threatening than others. We all face those. The Bible says uh, in Job chapter 14, 1, man, woman, humankind, is born of woman and is a few days and is full of trouble. Trouble the minute we're born. Sometimes it feels like that. Uh, Job also uh, records in 5, 7, man, humankind, human beings are born to trouble as the sparks fly upward like a flame. It's just a given of life. Life is full of trials, trials and circumstances. And some of you have maybe learned or maybe are learning that just because you became a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you thought, wait a minute, I thought all the troubles and problems were going to be over with. But if you've lived long enough in the walk with Christ, you realize that, you know what? I didn't even realize I had new troubles till I became a follower of Jesus. I, I got into all sorts of, because you're, 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 the way that you perceive life, 
the way that you operated, the way that you approached circumstances changed because you made Jesus Lord of your life. You're, you're walking and living under the Lordship, meaning He's your master. You're following after Him. That means those decisions to do that which was disobedient, those were easy. You didn't have to think about that. That was your default mode. But now you have a different principle operating in your life. Jesus is in charge of your life. What would Jesus do? It's more than WWJD. It's a way of life. What would Jesus have me do? And I don't have to, I can look to his word and draw out his truth, and the Spirit of God applies it in my life. And this morning, I want us to remind ourselves of the principle that I believe is seen here in this narrative passage in Acts chapter 16, and to remind us that there is one principle that I believe is really important when we're in these circumstances, whether we're in them now, we're going to be, or will be, but it'll happen. I believe that worship is a key that enables you to ultimately overcome. It doesn't mean necessarily the circumstances always work out the way that you want them to, but worship determines our focus out of the muck and mire and mess that we're in. Everybody with me? Worship is a key that enables us to not only navigate through whatever trials God allows to come into our midst, but I believe also gives us a key in overcoming the things that are oppressing us, that we are facing. Peter wrote in his letter, 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. Jesus said, in this life, you will have many, what? Trials, troubles. That's part of living in a fallen world that is affected by sin. We live in a fallen world. People will do us harm, intentionally and unintentionally. But I believe that there's some things that we can learn here. Let me give you three headings just to help us unpack this. And first of all, I want us to look at the trials that Paul and Silas endured. The trials the trials that Paul and Silas endured. I'm going to just go through this really quickly to give you a background because where we find the story is that Paul and Silas are in a Philippian, not the Philippines, the, a Philippian jail, all right? Uh, they are in jail. They've been arrested. And so there's a little backstory to that. Beginning around verse, um, in chapter 16... Back around verse 11, this is, this is kind of, we'll go through this really quick, is that Paul and Silas are in Philippi, and they meet a woman down by the river that's having a prayer meeting. She's a businesswoman by the name of Lydia. She's leading a prayer group down by the river. Paul uh, and his company, they meet with her, and the Bible says, if you read that, verse 14-ish, somewhere in there, the Lord opened her heart to hear what Paul was saying. The only way anyone is ever born again is if the Lord opens their heart. Amen. Period. I can talk all day long, but if God does not open 
your heart to hear the word of the Lord, it's just, we're just going through the motions. The Lord has to open the heart for an unbeliever to receive revelation, for something to be revealed. Not the book of Revelation, but to be revealed, for something to be seen that is unseen. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Lord did that. So as a result of that divine connection, do you believe in divine connections? That was a divine connection. And as a result of that, she, here she was. She was a businesswoman leading uh, a group of individuals in prayer. That tells me that God blesses women in leadership. Amen? Amen. And so here, in fact, it was through her that an entire church at Philippi was founded. Oh, my goodness. What are we going to do with that? Well, there you go. I was going to say put that in your pipe and smoke it, but that probably wouldn't be appropriate, so that's why I'm not going to say that. See, I get to edit that out. Well, Paul, the gospel doors are opening up, right? All it takes is one. The gospel doors are opening up. And as he begins to share the gospel out in the marketplace, out in the city, you know, with different people, there's this situation kind of in the marketplace where there's this girl who is demonically filled, demon-filled. The Bible says that she has a spirit of divination, and she is kind of, a, 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 kind of like a slave for this guy that's using her to tell fortunes and whatever, to make money off of her. And she keeps following uh, Paul and his followers around wherever she goes. In fact, she even... Uh, announces and says something, it says in verse 17, she followed Paul and us, uh, us is Luke, he's the author of Acts, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Is that a true statement or not? Yeah. Well, it says that Paul got greatly annoyed. You know why? Just like when Jesus, he's not going to allow demons to be the truth messengers to this world, okay? Demons, you remember when demons were around Jesus and they said, Son of the Most High God, what do, we have to, you know, what do, what do you have to do with us? He's not going to allow the enemy to be the messengers of the good news. That's our job, okay? Well, it says that Paul got greatly annoyed with her following him and, and pestering him and the, the, the spirit in her, that's important, the demonic spirit in her was causing or seeking to cause a disruption, the enemy can cause a disruption and distract from the truth, and he's gained a victory. And so what happens is, after a while that she's kind of following him around, it says that Paul got greatly annoyed, okay, in verse 18. And notice what he said, and notice the language here. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the what? To the spirit, not to the girl. Ephesians 6.12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spirits, principalities, powers. He said to the spirit, Listen, that person that is annoying you, and I don't mean just you know, annoying because you know, they did some little thing. I mean, they are, there's something that you know that is demonically influencing their life and decisions and they're seeking to cause you harm and their family harm and, and the situation, never forget that it's the spirit within them that is causing this disruption. He said to the spirit of that girl, you see, because the girl 
was made in the image of God. She didn't belong to the devil. She belonged to God. He made her. Psalm 139 says that she was fearfully and wonderfully made. Sometimes we forget about that. When we go after gay bashing and we go after this or we go after that, we forget that we're talking to image bearers of God that had been marred and affected by sin. And that should be shameful for Christians. Don't get caught up in all this hoopla going on in the political realm. Be Christian. Be followers of Jesus. That's the only political party you need to belong to. Citizens of the kingdom of God. That's free. I'm not going to charge you for that. That's a free, and uh, I approve of that message, okay? (laughs) And he says to her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out of her that very hour. You'd think, oh, my goodness, revival, revival. Everybody's excited, right? No. The guy that she's been, you know, working for, He's really upset. Why is he upset? Can't make money off of her. You see, the way the the demonic system works, it'll allow Christians to kind of do and have your own little prayer meetings. But once you start affecting the economy, once you start affecting the system, you're going to cause a great stir. See, you're going to cause trouble. That's the reason they, you know, they, they mock believers and Christians, uh, you know, about this idea of morality or against pornography or against that. There is billions of dollars being peddled and made on the pornography industry. Do you not think Satan, think about and however you want to f- fancy the Antichrist, but it says that without whatever that number is, and I'm not going to get off into that, it's an economic thing because you won't be able to buy or sell. See, it's a money thing that is involved in what Satan is doing. That's what's going on in here. She got delivered by Jesus Christ. But her taskmaster, her slave owner, if we could say it that way, he was greatly upset because he wasn't going to be bringing in, getting any money off of her. And so what did he do? He complained to the Roman magistrate about Paul and his friends and basically said they were violating Roman law. And it says in verse 21, the advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. He said they were violating the law by running his business. In verse 22, it says the crowd joined in attacking them. Be careful when crowds are getting stirred up over things because sometimes the crowds are wrong. Like at Calvary, the crowds were wrong. Make sure you're on the right crowd, the right side. The crowd joined in at attacking them, and the magistrates, those are the Roman officials, tore their garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. This was a severe thing. Verse 23, And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison. That's the deep... That's where there's no way they're going to escape, and fastened their feet in the stocks. You'd have seen those chains against the wall where they couldn't move. They weren't going anywhere. They were in prison, deep down in prison. And so you would think, well, there goes the gospel. There goes Paul. 
Only if God had known in advance, what was he going to do? The, the work of the kingdom now is going to be diminished because Paul and Silas, his, his friend who was accompanying him, they're in jail and the enemy want another one. What are we going to do? And Paul, he's just ready just to give up. No, that's not the testimony of Scripture. So look with me in verses 25 through 34. That's where we want to center looking at the trials of Paul and Silas to, secondly, the worship that Paul and Silas offered. In verse 25, what is the thing that it says that they did? And it says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were doing what? Yeah. They were praying and singing and, we could say, worshiping the Lord. Now, I wish I could say that I would be super spiritual and that that's what, exactly what you and I would be doing. But my prayer would be more of something like this. God, help me! Get me out of here! I was just passing out a few tracks. Right? Don't we do that? We do that for much less, don't we? We do that for much less. But it says that Paul and Silas were worshiping. And the way that the word reads that, that Paul was praying at all, it says because the word that is used there for praying is not a word that is used for petitions and requests like he was asking something. The word often is used to denote an attitude of worship. Yes, he was praying, but it was a worship praying. It was worshipful praying. That he was giving. Paul and Silas, his friend, as they were about sharing the gospel, they were praising God in the midst of that dungeon, in that prison, with iron stocks on their legs, maybe their hands. And what were they doing? They were worshiping Jesus. That, was, that tells me that even though they were in bondage, the message of the gospel and God's purposes was not in bondage. You may feel like you're trapped, but the purposes of God that he's ordained for you are never trapped. He's working out all things together for good. And Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. It may have twists, it may have turns, it may have valleys, but in all these things... God is always on the job. He's always in control of your life. We just need to acknowledge that. They're worshiping and praising God. Paul would write in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, or should I say 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore, (laughs) we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man, our outward body is perishing, yet the inward man, the inward person is being renewed day by day for our... Listen to how Paul says this. He calls them for our light afflictions, which is but for a moment, is working for us. What? You mean the trial is working for us? That's what he says. 
The trial is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I'm afraid that oftentimes our prayers are wrapped up so much in our selfishness that it's impossible to pray this way because the way we pray, when, when we don't get quite of the end result or answer that we expect, we're more depressed than when we began. And I think one reason why that is is because as we go through and list all the things that are wrong in our lives, what are we doing? We're reinforcing our fears, reinforcing our grief, our sorrow. We're just compounding it instead of, Lord Jesus, I just give it all to you. I know that you're in charge, you're in control, and I know that even in this valley... You're working in me a greater glory. That's the prayer of one who's in tune with focusing their eyes upon Jesus. Look into the eyes of Jesus and all the things of this world will grow strangely dim, as the song says. Uh, An individual who survived the concentration camps of Nazi Germany, Viktor Frankl, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And listen to something very profound that he says in this book. Frankel was a Holocaust survivor who wrote about his experiences in a Nazi concentration camp. Everything was taken away from these prisoners. They were stripped of their clothing, their pictures, and their personal belongings. Ooh, just spill water all over me. Um, They were stripped of everything. They even took away their names and gave them numbers. Frankel's number was 119,104. They were nameless. Their personhood was stripped away from them. Everything was taken away except one thing, Frankel said. Everything, he says this, quote, everything can be taken away from a human being except one thing, the last of human freedoms, and it is this. They cannot take away my ability to choose my attitude in any given circumstance. Now, that's coming from a man in a concentration camp. That's coming from a man that's being afflicted by evil. And he says, they can strip me and take away everything, but they can't take away my ability to choose my response to my circumstances. And I believe... That's a choice that we need to remember, <clears throat> that we have a choice. Our attitudes, our internal attitudes are vital to how the external affects us and how we will work through those. Paul and Silas, they were in prison. Their bodies were chained, but you cannot chain the human spirit. You cannot chain the human spirit. And Paul and Silas made a choice in the midst of a very, which seemed to have no end game except their death or jail for who knows how long, what did they choose at the midnight hour? They began to pray and pray in worship, singing, giving God thanks. And as we'll see, I believe there's great power in that. And I alluded to this, not only did they pray, but they sang. It says at midnight, they were praying and singing hymns. That doesn't mean they had a hymn book and said, all right, so let's turn to 143. Well, I wanted to sing 211. No, they weren't doing that. They were probably, they were singing the Psalms because that was the worship book of 
the Jewish nation and most of the early church because they were mostly composed of Jews. They began to open the Psalms, or probably, again, as Jews, they would have many of it, most of it, if not all, memorized. It's amazing how the word hidden in your heart is valuable when it comes and when you need it. But if you're not depositing the word of God in your heart, then in times of trial, there's not going to be anything there. Hide the word in your heart, as David said, that I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. What did they do? They began to worship the Lord. They began to praise. And it says, the Bible says in verse 25, the latter part, who was listening to them in this circumstance? Look at your Bibles. Don't look at me. Who does it say? Verse 25, the latter part, who was listening to them? Yeah. You realize that people around us are watching how we go through tough times, tough situations, our trials. They're observing. Yeah, they're a Christian, but boy, they don't, you know, they just, they're, they're in panic mode just like we are. Versus, boy, you know what's going on with that person? You know the hardships that are happening in them? And yet, it's more than just having a positive attitude. And I'm not talking about just having a positive attitude. I'm having, I'm saying, have a God attitude that affirms the goodness and sovereignty of God over everything. And that even though, as Job says, though you slay me, yet, yet I will worship you. And the jailers, they were listening to them. They were paying attention. How do we go through trials? How do people perceive what we're doing? And they were praying, they were singing, and verse 26 through 34, it says they were delivered. It says, suddenly, say suddenly, there was a great earthquake. Ground began to shake, prison doors fell open, and it says that everyone's chains were loosed and the prisoners were set free. That's a great thing if you're in prison. But if you're the guy operating the prison, uh, you got a problem. Because if any prisoner in that world, Roman government, if anybody escaped, they would kill the guy in charge and probably kill everybody else running the place. So they had a vested interest to panic when that happened. They weren't singing glory, hallelujah. They were panicking because they knew what was going to happen if all these prisoners escaped. But God was doing something. And it says the jailer, verse 27, or the keeper of the prison, he assumed all the prisoners had escaped and he knew what was going to be the consequence in his life. And it says that he drew his sword and was about to do what? Kill himself. And Paul said, don't do that. We're all here. Christians, now this is probably not exactly good, but I just thought of this. Don't take advantage of situations. Honor the Lord by honoring the law. Honoring those in authority over you, the Bible tells us. They didn't take advantage of the situation because, again, they knew their life was not in the control of the Romans. They knew their life was in control of God, and they weren't going to commit a violation of the law in order to justify what God had did. No, they said, hey, we're all here. Maybe Paul instinctively, by the Holy Spirit, knew, again, what was going to happen to this guy. And what did he do? What did he ask? Verse 30, he said, sirs, 
What was his question? What must I do to be saved? Now, how did he know that? I think it's because he was listening to them. Probably started out annoyed. Hey, shut up. We don't want to hear that. And they kept singing. Maybe he went in and threw some water on them, hit them, knocked them around. And they just started laughing and singing. And they just, and after a while, they just got, the jailers got tired and just, you know, leave them alone. They're crazy anyway. But as they were doing their job outside of the jail, listening, what? The Holy Spirit was doing something. You realize Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, He will, he, he will convict the world of sin. That's not you and that's not me. That's not our job. The Holy Spirit is the convicting agent sent by God to apply the Word of God. And so even in that, you know, we think, oh, that's so horrible. Paul and Silas arrested in jail. But yet I believe that before the foundations of the earth, there were some jailers and individuals marked out by the sovereignty of God, elected by the foreknowledge of God, that God said, you know what, I'm going to put my servants in the middle of that hell hole because I've got some individuals that I need brought into the kingdom. They need to hear the gospel. They need to respond to the gospel. And so I'm going to bring some suffering upon my servants because there's a greater thing that I'm operating by. You remember what Paul said in chapter 1 of Philippians? He said, and he's in jail. He's writing this from that Philippian jail. He says, you know what? I know that the things that have come upon me... Actually, scratch that. That wasn't the Philippian jail. But he's in jail. He says, I know, read around 13, 14, somewhere in there. He says, the things that have happened to me. What does he mean? The fact that I'm in jail. Have happened to me in order that the gospel may go forth. How did Paul see his life? You know that, the movie, The Expendables? He realized that he was expendable. He was just a tool in the purposes of God. And if God wanted to put him in jail, and as a result of him being in that Roman jail when he wrote Philippians, guess what? Many of the Roman guards became believers. God is in control. He may have us walk through the darkest valleys because there's somebody in that valley that will never hear the truth of the kingdom of Christ unless... God puts us in that place of hardship and suffering to be light in the midst of darkness. And so he said, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be a follower of Jesus? And it says that, and apparently, I mean, they were so excited, the jailer invited him to his house. (laughs) Imagine that. Went to the jailer's house. He spoke, Paul spoke the word of the Lord to them. And all who were in his house became Followers of Christ. And then it says they were baptized. There's a connection of water baptism in identification of being a follower of Jesus. Which, by the way, we are having a baptismal service March 20th. Just thought I'd throw that in. Listen to the great preacher of yesterday by the name of G. Campbell Morgan, no relative but I'll claim him. Listen to what he says about this. 
the revelation of supreme value in the story, in this story that we're talking about, is first the power of Christ to overcome the bitterness of difficult circumstances. It was not a song of deliverance that these men were singing, but the song, listen to this, but the song of perfect contentment in their bondage. That is the supreme marvel of the Christian life and the Christian message. Anyone can sing when the prison doors are open and they're set free. The Christian soul sings in prison. And I think that Paul would probably have sung a solo had he not been singing with Silas. But I nevertheless see the glory and grandeur of the Spirit that rises superior to all the things of difficulty and limitation. The Christian soul sings in prison. So what what are some things we can take away from this? Real quick, let me give you a few. Worship lifts us up from our present troubles. When I'm going through a tough situation, I don't mean a bad hair day, but I mean I'm going through, I'm going through something. You know what? I need something, someone. I need to get off of this plane, and I need to be brought up to see the situation from the eyes of the Creator. Worship helps us to do that. When we're focusing our hearts and minds in worship, cultivating the presence of God, inviting... You know what they were doing when they were singing? They were activating and inviting the presence of God into that prison. When we worship, we're inviting the presence of God into our situation. The psalmist writes in... So many times about worshiping the Lord, worshiping God. Let me read to you. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 73. Some of you need to know where some of this is. Psalm 73 is one example. Psalm 73, listen, a psalm of Asaph, not David, but another servant by the name of Asaph. Listen to what he writes. Listen to verse 1 and 2 and 3. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You ever get... You ever get upset because they got a new car next door? They went on that vacation. I said, I got envious. Look at verse 16 and 17. That's why I love the Psalms. They're just transparent. They're just real. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, and he goes on before that about really being upset and disturbed over life. He said, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me to be a wearisome task until, look at verse 17, 
until I went into where? The sanctuary of God. And then I discerned therein. And then I saw the life and circumstances differently when I entered into the sanctuary of God. How do you do that? You do that in worship. Cultivating the presence of God. And that is not just just because you play Joy FM on the way to work. It's when you begin to worship God. It's when you begin to engage as if God is real in your life. And that if He does not touch you, if He does not draw His presence into your own personal life in this moment, in this circumstance, when all hell is going, breaking loose around you, then you're in trouble. You're in trouble. See, it's desperation that drives us to those deep places of God that become the sweetest places. It's desperation when my head is stuck under water and I'm, and I'm dying to breathe. That's desperation. My fear is I don't worship enough in desperation. Look at verse 21, Psalms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. My bitterness caused me to have a wrong perspective of God, that He's, he's holding out on me. He doesn't really love me. Your attitude will affect the way you see God. But he says this, verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Where did he start out? He was ticked off. He was unhappy. Life had shorted him. He was bitter. What changed that? I entered into the sanctuary of God. And my attitude, my heart, my perspective changed. Worship lifts us up from our present troubles. Worship Reminds us of the mercy of God. Psalm 119 verse 50. This is my comfort in affliction. This is my comfort in my affliction. For your word has given me life. Trouble and anguish have overtaken me. Yet your commandments are my delight. What is your delight? Is it more excitement at what happens this evening? Between a bunch of people that are paid way more money than they deserve? To go out and beat each other into concussions? Is that what excites you? It's okay. Enjoy life. But what is your delight? What is your delight? The psalmist says, I delight in the mercy of God. Worship lifts us up from their present troubles. Worship reminds us of the mercy of God. And worship focuses us upon the power of God. You see... <coughs> When I begin to focus and worship upon God, 
I'm acknowledging that God, you have power to do anything. You have power to keep me here, and you have power to deliver me here. But as Paul would write it towards the end of Philippians, I have learned the secret of being content. To paraphrase, he says, I know what it's like to be wanting and having nothing, and I know what it is to have abundance. But in all these things, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. What is he saying? I'm not, my life is not on the roller coaster ride of circumstances. I have anchored my hope in a God who controls all things. And when I get on my knees and I pray, I'm acknowledging this God who rules and reigns and controls all things that can change the hearts of kings. And I'm living my life according to the God who's in charge. 